Welcome to Higher Edification, a podcast featuring college presidents and other education leaders talking about the state of higher education as well as the challenges and opportunities we face. Higher Edification is a production of ACUP, the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities of Pennsylvania and Misericordia University. I'm your host, Dan Myers, president of Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania, also known as President Dan on TikTok. I'm joined today by Jonathan Green, president of Susquehanna University. Thanks for being with us today, Jonathan. It's my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, This is our very first edition of Higher Edification, and so we're really looking forward to exploring some really important topics in higher education and learning a little bit about you and maybe what it's like to be a president as well. So, Yeah, so uh, maybe we start with a little bit of your background. I know you're a musician, and that's your academic training. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, where you've been in the music space over your life and how that got you into being a president? Sure. Well, um as you mentioned, I was a, a music major in college and a, a music professor, and I conducted choirs and orchestras um, at liberal arts colleges. Um, and uh, by virtue of being in that environment, I, I recognized the uh, incredible value of uh, liberal arts education, which was different from the professional training uh, that I experienced at music school. Um, and uh, it pretty quickly became the environment that I uh, found myself most comfortable in and recognizing the ways in which uh, students are really fundamentally uh, shaped by the experiences that they have at, at our kinds of institutions. Um, and then over the course of uh, a number of years, I went from faculty member to department chair to dean to chief academic officer and now president. Now, how did you start on that administrative path? I mean, a lot of people you kind of get drafted into it at the beginning, I suppose, and, and, and then things uh, snowballed from there for you, it sounds yeah, like. A little, a little <laughs> bit of that. I, I, I was very fortunate that I had a um, senior colleague in a neighboring department that tapped me to uh, help organize uh, the faculty in the fine arts to uh, develop a, uh, a Bachelor of Fine Arts program that was um, kind of a distinctive uh, degree program when I was uh, on the faculty at Sweetbriar College. And I think mm-hmm. those experiences uh whetted my appetite a bit for, for that work and also uh, built a little bit of credibility on, on that campus, and that was where my administrative group began. Yeah. Well, uh, faculty members often say when you start doing administrative work, at some point you go over to the dark side. I'm not sure where that is in that trajectory, but what, <laughs> at what point did you feel like you were uh, you had gone over to the dark side? You, you were doing more administrative Sure. Uh, work than being a faculty member. You kind of do both in a lot of these roles, but, right. but when, when did you kind of become a full-time administrator and think, this is my career path? Well, for me, it was pretty quick um, that uh, a few things uh, sort of fell in place pretty quickly. So I went uh, at one institution from being a one-year visiting part-time faculty member to the chief academic officer in six years. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, but you know, a series of, of, of opportunities and, and a few people that uh, had faith in my work. But what's really, really funny where you mentioned this, the first day that I went into my new office as, as the dean of the college at that institution, there was a student car parked out my window with a bumper sticker that said, welcome to the dark side, we have cookies. <laughs> we have cookies. <laughs> but, 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 but I thought, okay, well, you know, so, somehow fate has decided to corroborate that in fact, yeah. uh, you know, I had, had a sign up my window uh, welcoming, welcoming me to that work. But of course, as, as you know, uh, the work that we do uh, 
is so focused on on helping students and and our faculty and staff colleagues to be able to do the best work they can in support of our students. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the uh, um, the the jokes about it are, are um, I think I think necessary because you know we need we need a little bit of fun in, in the work that we do. But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but I think in terms of sort of working for the for the light, I, I can't imagine a career that that does that more. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I have to say, I mean, schools like ours, the 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 student experience really is at the center of what we're trying to do, and it's a big focus. You know, there's other things that are important too in scholarship and so forth, but. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the fundamental question that drives us at sure. the end of the day is how is this going to better our student experience? And, uh, you know, and I, I love being a part of that, that vibe. It really uh, it's it's a great driver for the for the work that we do, which is not always easy. I think that's right. no question. But, you know, I mean, and right now, I think higher education is in a particularly challenging moment. And there's a lot going on out there in the press and, you know, in the government and things that are really questioning the value of higher education in a lot of different ways. And, and uh, you know, we talk about it a lot when we're with groups of presidents and even on our own campus. And sure. I'm wondering, you know, what the what's the dialogue been like that on your campus about how do we convince people that what we're doing is worthwhile, given this kind of flurry of uh, rhetoric around us that sure. isn't quite as friendly? Well, and, and the, I think it's the conversations off campus that really matter because obviously um, the people who've decided to be at our institutions recognize what, what's happening for them. Uh, but I think it's pretty pretty clear that there are uh, a number of efforts to, to discredit higher education right now because of the ways in which you know, we're talking about you know, the thing that matters is the truth. And what we try to help our students and our communities do is to wade through the noise of contemporary discourse and, and identify those things which are true that help guide our decisions. And uh, we're at an unusual point in our history where uh, people celebrate the concept of alternate facts. Um, and uh, you know, as, as uh, Pat Moynihan said years ago, uh, Everyone is entitled uh, to their own opinion, but there's one set of facts, yeah. um, and uh, so I think that that's an that, that's of, of incredible import in terms of the work that we do in, in creating a discerning populace that will help make decisions in in a, a democratic republic that will advance society rather than than uh, pulling it back. Uh, but against that, there's all this noise also about the value of of what we do, um, and I think one of the most remarkable things. Uh, the Georgetown uh, study, uh, which was uh, a, a program out of the um, um, education department at Georgetown University a few years ago, made the first attempt using um, IRS data to uh, identify the impact of a college degree on the lifetime earnings of the graduates. And they did it by institution um, and uh, 10 years out, 20 years out, and over, the, over a career. Um, and it corroborated very strongly that um, there was about a million dollars more earning potential on average for a person holding a bachelor's degree versus a person who had either not attended college or did not complete a degree. And those data were just updated about a month and a half ago mm -hmm. and pointed out that actually the, the financial benefit of a college degree is at its greatest point now than ever in history. And at the same point, you could open a dozen newspapers and see a story about, you know, is it worth it? 
Um, and fundamentally, I think the thing we need to recognize is earnings isn't the most important thing that happens. Uh, but if you're thinking, am I going to pay for an education and will it, will it pay off financially? That's really inarguable uh, against the backdrop of, of literally millions of, of data points. Um, but at the same point, what we're really doing is trying to help students find the ways to live lives that are most meaningful to them and most rewarding. Um, and every person who wrote one of those newspaper stories saying, you know, is college worth it, would never imagine their own children not going to college. Yeah, yeah. I was looking up. Somebody wants me a big statement about college isn't worth it. And then I looked up where they sent their kids. And this was a very wealthy person mm-hmm. who uh, could wouldn't be eligible for any need-based financial aid. So they were paying full freight at a school that was over $80,000 a year. Apparently, they thought it was worth $80,000 a year for their kids. And it just made me wonder, what are they trying to accomplish here by convincing other people that it's not worth it? Well, they may not care about other people's kids, Yeah, um, you know, which is a, a, a different issue entirely. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think higher education really is, is the gateway to building a, a, a better society and... Uh, certainly at this point in time, if uh, economic uh, transformation is also part of what a person is, is hoping for, college education is, is the way to make that happen. And I think, you know, in institutions like um, Lisa Recordia and Susquehanna, it's not just the economic futures of our students, it's their entire families. Um, you know, when we're at graduation and uh, you know, sometimes you'll see a group of 20 people who are cheering on the first person in their family to graduate from college, and the trajectory of that entire family is going to change for the better as a result of that, which is why they're so thrilled. Um, and uh, how can that not be uh, a great investment? Yeah, I mean, that's very powerful. And we, we, we see that in the kind of students that come to Misericordia. I mean, it's really a generational, life-changing experience uh, to, to go to college and to get a degree and to be put into a place where they can earn differently, but also participate in society in a very different way. And that brings us to the, I, I mean, you've been talking about it in a certain way here by, by talking about what else do you get out of sure. a college education besides earning potential, but, you know, the, the, the kind of liberal arts vibe that our schools, again, are, are um, known for uh, is a very important piece of that education. And what what all do people get uh, that helps them with their earning potential, but also makes them a different kind of citizen, a family member, a participant in their community in various ways? Uh, how does that liberal arts work to even to, to produce that? Well, what, um, once again, there are lots of data that corroborate that um, a person who graduates from one of our institutions will, first of all, live longer will have access to better health care and will be healthier. Um, and some of, some of that is because of the opportunities of, of earning, but some of that is also um, understanding uh, the ways in which you in, engage with the healthcare community mm. in a way that benefits you and your families that you may not have understood mm. before. Um, those individuals are far more likely to, uh, pr- to vote, uh, to participate in... Uh, the democratic systems in which they live, they're far more likely to be philanthropic. Um, and there have been some really interesting studies. The Gallup um, folks did a, a study about uh, high-impact practices um, in education and th- those things that, that help to contribute to uh, career success 
uh, were also seen to have a very, very strong correlation of some, something like 60% increase in the likelihood of happiness as an adult mm. uh, by virtue of the kinds of experiences that are intrinsic to the educational programs that, that we offer at our institutions. Um, wow. And, you know, even if you didn't make a penny more, being happier certainly is worth something. Yeah. yeah. That's quite a package when you put it all it together, is isn't it? And, so, and that was the largest data set that Gallup had ever put together uh, when they did that study. So, I mean, also thinking about the people that you know, invented surveys, yeah. practically. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the tens of thousands of, of individuals that, uh, whose data were put into that system, I think, can make it a really strong outcome. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That, that's impressive. I mean, you know, we, of course, are, are stumping for our own industry sure. and our own schools when we, we talk about this stuff, but there is a lot of data out there that is pretty objective that, that does this uh, demonstration of this. So, I mean, schools like ours also, of course, take it on the chin uh, for the price point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, we offer this package, but then part of the the calculation people are making about is it worth it is what's the upfront sure. investment and they see these tuition prices and it really and and how they have mm-hmm. gone uphill uh i mean how do we justify that that cost uh is it do it does it really cost that much to do this well and you you, you know you know the answer just by the words that you're choosing i mean one one yeah. of the, the the challenging dichotomies and um higher education is the price and cost are not the same thing. Um, and there is the issue of a student at, a, at our institution, nine out of the top 10 cross applicant schools. So the, the our biggest competitors in terms of where our, our um, prospective students are also applying, nine out of 10 of those are public institutions. Um, and so one of the things is that Students and their families look at value of an institution, comparing the price tags of independent institutions to independent institutions. And that has moved up year after year because of inflationary factors. It's, it's even outstripped inflation. But at the same point, because most of our institutions are really pricing themselves against public institutions when students are finally getting their offer letters and, and their financial aid packages and sitting down with their families to decide what makes sense, they're often comparing three offers from public institutions with uh, an offer from an independent. And so the financial aid packages that, that our institutions offer um, are, at this point, more than half of the price tag. Um, and thinking of, of ACUP in particular, um, among the ACUP schools, so the, uh, the 90... Uh, independent higher education institutions in Pennsylvania, in the last decade, out-of-pocket cost for tuition and fees has actually gone down eighty dollars. So in twenty what, since, people, when? since uh, twenty twelve, from twenty twelve so to twenty twenty two, over a decade, the actual uh, average amount uh, that a fa- family paid in tuition among those ninety schools went down. $80. And that's not adjusted for inflation. So adjusted for inflation, it went down a lot. And part of that was wow. our institutions recognizing what families needed to make a degree possible. And so a combination of financial aid, fees that were that we waived to, to make it um, accessible for our students. So that actually a student in Pennsylvania 
who attends an independent institution is, first of all, likely to graduate, more likely to graduate, mm -hmm. more likely to graduate in four years, on average will graduate with less debt, and the graduates of those institutions have a default rate that's about half of the default rate among college students overall. And so um, graduating with, with less debt by attending a school that has what looks like a higher price tag is you know, one of the puzzles that it, it's hard to explain. Yeah. Um, but also because of the economics of things, the only way we'd ever be able to make it work differently is if everyone could do a price reset together. And there are uh, rulings from uh, the federal government that say we can't talk about pricing with each other. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, because it would be price fixing. And right, so, right. unfortunately, we have one thing that we would really all like to see fixed uh, <laughs> that, that we can't have those conversations yeah. at the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, for the time being, the, I mean, I guess we need to encourage people not to be freaked out by the sticker price, right. the sticker shack issue, because what you know yes those prices have been going up but scholarshiping at these schools has been going up at even faster probably even faster yeah. right yeah. so in the end it, it sounds like you're actually you end up with less you're actually paying less to go to an independent slash private school in pennsylvania anyhow than you are to go to some of the state assisted yeah. schools that yeah, absolutely yeah. i mean that's probably a shocker for people to hear that you go to one of our schools and you're going to pay less wow i mean that's <laughs> and that's that's the thing that, that I mean there are lots of reasons why it's hard to wrap your head around something like that but it absolutely um, should encourage prospective students and their families to look at the school that's going to be the best experience for them yeah. um, and thinking about you know one one of the, the real benefits of, of our institutions small class sizes uh, you know at, on our campus every class is taught by a faculty member and a faculty member who has chosen to be at the teaching institution because teaching undergraduate students is the thing they're most passionate about. So they're national and international experts in their disciplines, but they are dedicated to working with undergraduate students in an environment with a class size where um, you know, every individual student is lifted up and, and uh, you know, is engaging in, in the discourse of the class as opposed to being in a room with 500 of their closest friends. And what is that going to do for a student over the course of, of four years in terms of you know advancing their um, their intellectual capacity and their their ways of, of dealing with information and communicating when you're in that kind of environment? And then after you've done your financial aid work with an institution, if you say, boy, this is really the institution where if it were possible, I would do so well here. And lo and behold, in most cases, it'll end up being less expensive. Yeah. Well, that's that's a great message to folks, and you know it's uh, you know it's challenging because they sometimes they run away on the front end when sure. they see the the initial cost. But uh, but I, I think all of you what you said is very true. I mean, I was I was speaking to a faculty member here recently, and he was telling me about the biggest class he's ever taught here, and uh, it's become very popular. It's a course about death and dying, and uh, and how you grapple with that sure. in various ways. And it's a humanities course, so it's based on these texts and so forth. Um, and, he's, and he said, yeah, it's a, there's 36, and I break them up for discussion sections at other points so we can have a closer contact with them. And I, I almost laughed to myself because I was a graduate student at Ohio State sure. for a while, and I taught, uh, I was a TA, and I taught the discussion sections for the big lecture of the introductory class. The discussion sections had 50 people. Right. 
bigger than the biggest class here, you know. So, <laughs> so it's a very different kind of experience when you're when you're doing that. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think that's a that's a real piece of value that we offer to students, and I'm and I'm glad we can do it at a price point that they can manage when when you come right down to it. It's it's a uh, it's a very meaningful community to be a part of when you have yeah. that kind of intense, thick interaction. Well, and it's rewarding for for everyone. I mean, I, when when I was a traditional faculty member, I was teaching the largest classes on campus because choir and orchestra, we wanted them to be big. Right, um, right. You know, but but uh, you know, meanwhile, everything else in my department was you know, eight to to twelve students in seminars. Right, um, right. And and you know, what a rewarding environment to be in where, I mean, you're, you're, you're really rolling up your sleeves with a text or, uh, with a score and, and a group of young people and unpacking it and, um, engaging with them, you know, it's, it's incredibly edifying to the students, but it's just as rewarding for the faculty members. I mean, that's, it, it's, it's the best learning environment there is. Yeah. Oh, well, that's one of the reasons they choose to be in a school like this because yeah. that, those, Interactions are so great. I mean, I was at Notre Dame for years, and, and I, I taught a gigantic class there, mm -hmm. uh, 450 students. Um, but I also taught that, uh, you know, 10 to 12 student kind of really intensive interaction kind of class. And I, I you know, I'd come out of that class at the end of the day. I said, that was the best teaching experience sure. I ever had. So unbelievably rewarding. Um, well, and one, one of the postgraduate, uh, I think, advantages also of, of that kind of learning environment is, I mean, I got an email yesterday from a student who would like me to write a letter of recommendation for grad school for her. And in an institution like ours, this is a student that I can I can write with really great knowledge of, of the talents that she has and what she'll bring to, um, you know, what she has to offer for another institution. And, you know, a place where you're teaching a class of 450, um, that's just never, never going to happen. No. Um, and, um, you know, and I think, you know, a number of those sort of hidden values of, of, of what we do um, are the things we need to figure out to lift up better so that people recognize, um, you know, what, what we offer them. Well, that kind of teaching and interaction as a student is going to prepare you better for graduate school, sure. too, because that's what you're going to do when you get yeah. to graduate school. And you don't want to be intimidated walking into a small seminar with a bunch of other really bright graduate mm -hmm. students. And never have had that experience of having to wrestle with a text like that with a group. I, mean, yeah. I think that's uh, that's great preparation for that next step for those who are going to do it. And I think, you know, we, we, we all get the stories of our students that, that go off to grad school and you know, send back a message saying, I was the best prepared of everyone in my class when I showed up. Mm -hmm. and, and because in many ways, what um, students... Students who go to large public institutions and have those sort of industrial-sized classes, graduate school is the first time that they're actually in the environment where they have responsibility to carry the water in the class as, as you know, as interlocutors in, in yeah. the conversation around uh, whatever the topic of the course is. And our students have been doing that for four years before they ever get there. Yeah, yeah they expect to do it, yeah. right? So they're, they're well-prepared as... It's a great it's a great asset and not just in a graduate school classroom, but you get into gr work groups in your job or, you're, you know, you work in a corporation and to have having had that experience of negotiating meaning and uh, so forth, you know, matters a lot yeah. when you're doing that kind of work when you get out there. Well, And there was a, um, a study a few years ago, I think it was Hart and Associates did, did the data collection, but it was what first of all, what are employers looking for from college graduates? Or, and you know, and what 
things could schools do to better prepare them. But some of the additional things that they, they learned in that study was that even though 2 to 3% of college students in the country are attending liberal arts institutions, about 20% of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies had a liberal education. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are things that happen in the context of uh, our institutions. And actually, th even thinking about that Georgetown study again, they, you know, early earnings, engineering schools, pharmaceutical colleges, those were the ones that, you know, day one people were, yeah. um, were, sure. were doing well. For lifetime earnings, the liberal arts college graduates actually passed all of those other, other groups. And um, when they dug in a little deeper, because I think they were surprised by those data, part of it was that they were more likely to advance into leadership positions in the organizations where they found themselves working. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, then part of it is, are you investing for your first job or are you investing for a lifetime career? That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, and I've been doing this for years and I didn't start off doing it as an experiment to find out. I really wanted to know what these successful CEOs and COOs of these companies thought were important skills that um, help them in their careers? What, what was the most important experience you had sure. as an undergraduate uh, that helped you through your career? And I mean, I can't think of a single time, and I've asked this question to hundreds of people now, uh, that they didn't say something in their liberal arts core or, or their liberal arts education that was the most important thing. And, and because it teaches all these different skills about critical thinking and how to read text and get meaning out of, and now it's even a bigger deal, as you were saying right. earlier, trying to get the signal out of the noise that's around us and all of these different skills you get from liberal arts education. I just think it's incredibly important. And yet, this is another thing that kind of takes a beating sure. um, out there. And I wonder sort of what the future uh, holds for liberal arts education and what we can do to, um, to, to, to bolster people's investment in that part of the education because we know how important right. that is. Well, I think one of the things that will continue to be true will be that the graduates of our institutions will continue to be advantaged after graduation. Um, the thing that we need to continue to dedicate ourselves to is being sure that students who are meritorious continue to have access so that our institutions don't sort of go back, you know, retrograde, retrograde to the families of privilege or the only ones that were able to provide this kind of education yeah. to their um, to their children 50 right. years ago, one of the great things that has happened over time is that we have more and more democratized um, access to our institutions. And um, I sure wouldn't want those advantages uh, to not continue to uh, become available to more and more deserving students, uh, independent of the capacity of their families to underwrite it. Yeah, that's that's very important. And you know, another you know, important issue in the higher ed landscape right now is our diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, and that you know, there's there's a lot of discussion about that as well, and, and attacks on DEI operations. But I mean, I know for us, DEI is about what you just said. It's mm -hmm. about how do we serve underserved groups, and you can look at statistics everywhere and identify those who are underserved by higher education. And we're trying to do a better job of mm -hmm. reaching and supporting that population so they can be part of what's going on as well. Um, but that's that's another challenge that we're dealing with right now. Well, and and you know, yet again, part of it is the rhetoric that that is driving this because I mean, fundamentally, the DEI work that we do on campus 
is aimed at being sure that people understand um, the context in which each of us lives and makes our decisions, how we can be better neighbors, how we can help to um, be sure that everyone is treated fairly, um, and how we can learn to uh, make people feel respected and seen um, and to appreciate um, the shoes that they've worn to get where they are. Mm -hmm. And all of that is, is just fundamentally being good people and somehow the idea of politicizing something um, and, and targeting it as, as being malicious when the whole core is how can we just help the next generation of people be better to each other than our generation was. Um, and, yeah. you know, I defy anyone to say that that's not a good idea. Right, right. Well, I was talking, at, we, this this university was founded by the Sisters of Mercy, and, and some of the sisters are still here with us and uh, participate in our community. Hopefully in not ways. 99 years of the same sisters. I no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we were talking about this, and, each, and one of them said to me, but it's, it's about being kind mm -hmm. to others and, and being kind to people who are different than you are. That, that, and that's that was her frame on it. And I think there, there's a certain part of that that's just absolutely right. And, you know, we want to be in an environment where that's happening. And we want to help people figure out how to do that, right? right? You know, I, mean, you know I, I think the golden rule is the golden rule. Um, you know, and uh, anything we can do to help people understand how they can they can live that objectively and successfully is just good for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, uh, you know, this has been a lot of fun talking with you and, and unearthing some of these issues and, you know, talking about a way that we hope be helpful to other people in thinking about them. But I'm going to come back to music uh, mm -hmm. to finish this off because, you know, you talked about your history with music, but does music somehow help you now as a college president, dealing with all the different things that come on, I mean, do you, do you have something you listen to that makes it better? Or do you tell people to listen to music? Or do you <laughs> conduct them? Or what, what, how does music come into your life now as a college president? Well, my normal response would be that you know, I, I still compose, you know, and so I think it, it's, you know, it's a way that, that feeds um, a certain component of, of, of my creative life. And I've been lucky that I've got uh, faculty colleagues that uh, just had a couple of faculty colleagues prepare a piece of mind at an international oh, conference, and so so you know, I still still um, you know get to participate in that. But we just had our senior leadership team retreat, and uh, we were having a conversation about some aspects of the ways in which we um, you know, part of our job is to provide hope and context for the people whom we serve as, as leaders. And something someone mentioned just reminded me of. Uh, a film clip of Otto, Otto Klemperer uh, conducting near the end of his life a, a, a Beethoven symphony. And so um, last last week I made my team you know, watch the uh, uh, the five minute uh, clip of, of, of that performance. And and, uh, uh, and it's interesting because four or five of them have come back and asked more about it. But I think, you know, once, once in a while there will be uh, a moment that uh, we're, we're where music, which I think in, in many ways is probably the most abstract of the arts, um, gives us some tools to be able to sort of elucidate um, the ineffable things that are uh, that we confront every day in our work. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of power in music in so many different ways. It's great when we can bring it into our environment and uh, use it to help people appreciate all the different things we do. So I'm a big proponent. I, I'm an amateur musician. I'm nothing like you, but but I find uh, it it uh, comes into my life in lots of different ways as a college president and 
in very positive That's and right. useful ways. It's, it's well, really you may be an amateur, but I don't know how to play the guitar, so you're up on that. <laughs> what is your primary instrument? Um, now I, I play the piano at home okay. uh, the most, but I, I, I was actually uh, originally trained as a singer. Oh, okay, very good. But now, but you told me once that you played the bassoon for something too. Is that right? Well, um, I, I played in high school a little in college, and 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 actually a week and a half ago, um, I made a pretty feeble effort to uh, 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 join a group of students in a in a woodwind quartet, which was great fun. That's great. Well, you're going to come and do a guest spot with my rock band quest. We're going to have a bassoon solo. So, <laughs> <laughs> now, actually, if, uh, Paul, Paul McCartney and Wings, uh, Band on the Run album, there, there's a, there are a couple of bassoon solos on that. Is that right? Yeah. I'm going to listen for that. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. We've been speaking with Jonathan Green, president of Susquehanna University, and we hope you have enjoyed this installment of the Higher Edification podcast brought to you by the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities of Pennsylvania and Misericordia University. <laughs>